0: You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, if you've got little ones up to second grade that you would like to send over to Children's Church, you can let them head to the back of the room, and they'll be led over to their classes. We're going to be beginning the book of Titus this morning, and this uh, study of this book will, will take us through the end of the year. Um... So uh, so if you want to turn there, you'll find uh, uh, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, then you'll get to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus, if you're looking for it. Uh, before I can stand before you and preach, I have sort of a confession to make, because uh, I want to have a clear conscience. We had a men's fellowship uh, last night, kind of around a campfire at the Acres House, and, um, and I need to confess to you that I ate a cheeseburger, a hot dog, another hot dog, some chips, four cookies, a Dr. Pepper, and a 7-Up. And I can't preach on elder qualifications before you unless you just knew that and knew that I was in repentance about that. I can't speak for the other brothers. Some of them did worse than me. That was soul food. It, I don't know how good it was for my soul. Uh, all right, Titus chapter one. So this morning, what I, what I hope to do is, uh, Lord willing, lead us through the first nine verses um, uh, of the first chapter. So there'll be a bit of an intro to the book, just so that we all know kind of what's going on. And then we'll get into verses five through nine, which speaks on elder qualifications. Um, and, and then uh, we're doing something a little bit unusual, but uh, we'll, we'll be here in this passage. Uh, then next week, uh, Billy, Shiel, Billy, throw a hand up. There you go. Uh, church planting resident and, and elder in training with us is uh, going to preach next week on church planting from this Titus context. Uh, Billy is going to be sent out next year to plant a church, and so, uh, of course, it's something that's on his heart and on all of our hearts, and we want to really understand what it is that the Lord is doing through church planting. So he'll preach next week, Uh, then the following week after that, Galen will be um, preaching uh, verses 10 uh, through 16, but then uh, the week after that, we're going to take another look at Uh, at eldership, and the elder-led church, and Roosevelt will be teaching on that. So we'll we'll be bouncing around a little bit, and you'll hear from a few different voices here in the beginning of Titus, but it'll all be stuff that the Lord, uh, I really believe, will use and and encourage us in. So let's read uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and then just stop and pray for some help. grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Lord, we turn to you again and confess our need for you to do what we can't do. We know that we can do nothing apart from you. And certainly, to understand spiritual truths, to not just understand them, but to believe them, and then to embrace them and obey them, Lord, is just something that's beyond our natural selves, we confess. So please, Lord, overcome our limitations. Overcome our short-sightedness, our sinfulness, even our resistance this morning. Would you break down barriers, walls, hardness of heart? Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning, to love him more sincerely, to grow up in our faith, and to learn to live together for his glory. Please do it now, Holy Spirit, by your power, by your power, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So just as a, as a little bit of introduction to uh, the book of Titus to help you go, uh, understand what's going on here, of course, we know it's written by Paul and it's written to Titus, but how about that, how about that introduction? Uh, man, Paul sometimes goes on these long sentences with like eight commas, and by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, man, I feel like I need some more punctuation up in here. But uh, but he's he's speaking to Titus, and he's speaking from faith in Christ and for the glory of Christ and for the good of the church, believing that God has saved people there in Crete where Titus is, and that he's gathering to the, them together in the church, uh, and, and that uh, Jesus is leading them on this mission of God to see the gospel advance, and so he's writing for the good of the gospel's advancement, and, and he's writing it to Titus because Titus is part of Paul's church planting team, and he's traveled with him, he, he calls him his true child in our common faith, he really saw him as a son in the faith, and Titus saw him as a father. Paul is older now. Titus is a younger man, and, and Paul is a little bit older now. This is written in the early to mid 60s, not like, not like hippie uh, 60s, but the actual 60s. Uh, about 30 years after the Lord Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended. Uh, now about 30 years later, after uh, after all that the Lord had done through the book of, of Acts and all these things, we have uh, this written by Paul to Titus. And uh, I think we, have, uh, we should have a map here that will help give a little bit of context just so that you understand kind of where this is coming from. There you go. There's Crete. So uh, you have the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the Greek-speaking world to the north of there, uh, where Corinth is, and, and then you have Rome off to the west in Italy, um, and, and, and Paul had made, we know, of three separate um, missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. His first was made in 46 AD, then another in 49 AD, and then the third in 42, uh, sorry, 52 AD, and these church-planting missions spanned from Jerusalem all the way around the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea and eventually to Rome, which we finally read about in the final chapter of Acts, in Acts 28. You see Paul going to Rome, being in prison. He wants to actually face Caesar, and and he had the opportunity there to lead a lot of people to Christ, even from prison, where he was under house arrest, basically. But then there was evidently a fourth missionary journey he took at some later time— that Luke didn't record in Acts because the, the uh, record that Luke had recorded was already written. And it was on this trip that Paul planted and oversaw the planting of several new churches on the island of Crete, which is circled here. A Crete had a reputation in the ancient world for being kind of the biker joint of nations, if you will. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody who just is like a really rough person called a Cretan. Uh, But this is why, Uh, and it's specifically about something that one of their own people said and that that Paul kind of affirmed. So I'm going to ask you to real quickly just look ahead at verses 12 and 13 of this first chapter. Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And look at Paul in verse 13. This testimony is true. He's just like, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's pretty much what it's like. Uh, so, I mean, I imagine, you know, some wide-eyed little new believer in Antioch or something telling Paul, hey, I heard you're going to Crete. I want to go with you to Crete. And Paul, you no. Know, uh, go home and snuggle with a lamb. Okay, you don't want to be in Crete. Oh, I can do it. I can do it. They will eat you. They will eat you. They won't even cook you. They'll just eat you rare with no steak sauce. They are just brutes, evil beasts. So Crete is just not a place where people hang out for fun. Um, And yet the Lord was doing this work. And poor Titus is left there to oversee that work. But uh, he was the man for the job. And so Titus has been given this task of spending time in these Cretan churches, getting to know the brothers and sisters there so that he can teach sound doctrine, build on the foundation that Paul and his team had preached and assess the maturity of the brothers so that elders could be appointed to lead these churches. And, and it's because the Lord was already doing something there. The Lord had established a work, established the gospel, and people were getting saved. And so whatever their own people said about them and that Paul affirms uh, about their sinfulness, uh, the Lord was still willing to save, which is just a testimony and I, and I hope can be a real great encouragement to all of us, but particularly those of us who see ourselves as just the worst and, and as just beyond the reach of God, you're just not. The Lord, the Lord saves. So then here, before we get into this list, starting in verse five, I want to ask you probably just flip back probably just seven or eight pages and, and keep your spot there in Titus, but find First Timothy chapter 3. And it's really not far at all. First Timothy chapter 3, there'll be a few references to that passage. So you might want to just kind of uh, maybe put that little ribbon in there. Or if you don't have the ribbon, just kind of you know, shoot a piece of paper or something in there. All right, so in Titus. Let me read again verses 5 through 9. Paul says to him, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, now here he's getting into the qualifications of who it is that Titus should be looking for among the believers. Anyone who is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, which is just like this giving yourself over to sensuality and, and these things, or insubordination. For an overseer, now overseer is synonymous with elder here, so don't see those as different things. In fact, overseer, is literally translated bishop. So, so, that, so the bishop or the overseer and the elder are the same guy, same type of person, same role in the church. As God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So looking at this list of qualifications, here we have at the very top of the list, he must be above reproach. And this heads the list... Because everything else that's said about that is describing what it means to be above reproach. So you have to see this as a description of a person who is not able to be reproached or or kind of looked at as someone who's immature, ungodly, that, that you're looking for a man whose character, his Christ-likeness, has has brought him to a place where there's no obvious accusation against him. He's not going to bring shame on the church or anything like that. He's a man who's above reproach. And now here we see the description of what it means to be above reproach. The very first thing that Paul says is the husband of one wife. And the literal translation of this is a man of one woman. A one woman man. So this has been described at at certain points as uh, talking about it, it can't be a man who's ever been divorced and then remarried. But that's not the context It's not saying a man who has only ever had one wife, because Jesus gives some qualifications for uh, if there's marital unfaithfulness, then it's okay if they're, you know, it's not ideal, it's not God's design, but there's grace that there could be divorce and there could be remarriage, and and then that man shouldn't be disqualified from being an elder if he was sinned against and he's living righteously. Instead, the context here is that his heart is only for his wife. He's a one-woman man. His eyes are for her, his body is for her, and he's not moving outside of marriage to seek out affection or attention from another woman. He is a one-woman man. So you're going to first of all see an elder as somebody who loves his wife well. He leads her well. Now look, we don't even leave the home to get into the second qualification, that children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now again, we have to get into translations here, and, and we'll let Timothy, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy help us, but the word translated believers can also be translated faithful. In fact, I, I don't know why they keep saying believers. They really should just be saying faithful in the interpretations. Now, the difference is, imagine a man who is, who is faithful to his wife and faithful to his children, and he's mature in his faith and loves the church and works hard for the good of the church, but he shouldn't be considered as a potential elder because one of his kids isn't a believer. Can he control that? He can't control that. He prays for his kids, he disciples his kids, leads them in the truth, but only the Holy Spirit can move on a person's heart, awaken them so that they would put faith in Christ and follow him. The the man can't do that. So we have to understand this as faithful, not being believers in the way we use that word, that they're a person who loves and follows Jesus, but instead what Paul is getting at, the, the real context is, that his children are generally respectful, they're obedient, they're submissive, they're not going to bring shame upon him or his family through their misbehavior. He, he keeps them in check. Go, go back to Timothy and see what Timothy says. 1 Timothy 3. Paul is giving the same kind of list to Timothy here so that he can appoint elders where he is in Ephesus. Therefore, starting in verse 2, "...therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church?" So you see the context there is that he's a faithful husband and a faithful father. He can't decide and secure the salvation of his kids, but he sure can disciple them in the truth and pray for them and lead them and discipline them so that they would be respectful and obedient. Now, the fact that Paul leads out with the man's relationship with his wife and his kids is not an accident. He did that on purpose because the household is the training ground and testing ground for what it looks like to be a leader in the church. If you're failing at home to live up to the calling that God has put on your life as a husband and as a father, then why would you expect to be able to do that for husbands and for fathers and for wives and for children, for people who are coming to know Christ and they need to be led and discipled and challenged in their faith, but you're not even doing that at home. I mean, you watched a child come into the world and from literally day one, you had the opportunity to disciple them. But if you haven't, if you haven't done that, then there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. But how can you be expected to disciple people who you're just getting to know when you were there from day one for this child and didn't do it? Well, the time to start is now, right? Always now. But if it hasn't been there yet, then there's time for growth and there's time for repentance and and following Jesus in those ways so that we could grow in that way. So Paul reiterates the point in connection with the elder's faithfulness to his wife and kids that the man must be above reproach. It's in connection with this idea about family. You see, after he talks about your relationship with the wife and relationship with the kids, then in verse seven, he says again, for... Because of this, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So again, we see being above reproach is look at him at home. Talk to his wife. Talk to his kids. What is he like behind closed doors? So this is really getting to a a little bit broader point before we get into the rest of these things and try to understand the kind of guy that's being described here. God is always about what's in the heart, not about outward appearances. Jesus reiterated this all the time. What, what was his big hang-up and his big criticism of the Pharisees at all times is it was that they had this appearance of godliness, but they denied its power. They, they thought that through God's word they would find life, but they denied Jesus, whom all the words were written about. They put loads on people's backs and and. And weighed them down with guilt and condemnation, but didn 't even lift a finger to help them bear the load. Jesus says they were whitewashed tombs inside they were full of dead men 's bones, but on the outside they looked nice, and in the same way elders uh, uh, an elder in a church can look like just a real polished, nice guy, really friendly he he speaks and preaches and teaches and all these things and it's great, but if you look into his home and it's dead men's bones, he's not qualified to lead because everything he's doing on the outside is not flowing from his heart, but you would have to believe it's flowing from a desire to be put up on a pedestal and respected above others and seen as something greater because if he's not even doing it at home, then it's not in his heart. So then let's look at the rest of this list just understanding we're talking about the guy's heart, who he really is, when it's just him and the Lord in the quiet, what's he like? So he must not be arrogant. He must not be arrogant. We know that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and an elder will need boatloads of grace for the task ahead of him. I mean, the overwhelming majority of you in the room have not been an elder in a church. And so you may not understand in a real experiential way what it feels like to be put in that kind of position of responsibility and stewardship under the Lord's direction. Jesus as the chief shepherd and you as an under shepherd that he's put you in this position and that you're gonna be held responsible to look him in the eye and give an answer for how you led. It is a daunting task. And we need so much grace for it because we're not Jesus at the end of the day, right? An elder is not Jesus. He's just working for the glory of Jesus. So he must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He can't be a guy who flies off the handle, who's quick to make judgments without the facts and speak before he's meditated on God's word and spent time in prayer for wisdom. He has to be a guy who's quick to listen and slow to speak. We all know those kinds of people, and we know the kind of people who are real slow to listen and real quick to speak. Always shouting you over you, always interrupting you, never really hearing you. That's not an elder. And if you look into his home and you see that he's always shouting over his wife and never listening to his wife and fails to really understand his wife. If his kids feel this distance from him because he's just a shouter and all of his discipline is about trying to talk them into obedience and he's not modeling it and he's not coming down close to listen to them and hear what's in their hearts, that's not your guy. He can't be a drunkard. Now, here we are again. This might surprise you, but the Greek word translated drunkard is actually someone who drinks too much alcohol and gets drunk. It's just, I know it's confusing. We are exegeting this morning. But then really do look at the deeper impact of drunkenness. What's that really about? It's a lack of self-control, isn't it? It's a person who, who is unable to control himself. So how, if he can't control himself, can he be trusted to lead God's church? And what other ways might he give in to the desire of his flesh, to act irresponsibly, to waste time, to endanger others? If he does so to himself, he can't be violent. Now, a violent, again, it's it's a very plain meaning, just violent towards others, physically violent. But what is violence really about? Isn't it trying to command the obedience of another person to to submit to your will, even though they won't do so willingly? And so you you resort to this violence to try to control them. But an elder isn't trying to control people, he's trying to lead them. So he can't be a person who is prone to violence. Greedy for gain, man, listen. How many elders can you find on the TV who are greedy for gain? It is an egregious affront to the gospel that so many preachers and pastors are so obviously. Greedy for gain, and yet they're lauded and praised because they're able to talk people into giving so much money to the kingdom while the kingdom really turns out to be their castle. Greedy for gain, man, if you're looking at a guy who wants to lead because it financially benefits him, that is absolutely not your guy. That is not God's man for this kind of job. Please don't trust people who are getting rich off the gospel. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is the opposite of all those signs of immaturity that we just saw in that list of sinful attributes. Hospitable, an open home. He receives others. People feel received by him a lover of good, self-controlled, upright. He lives upright, not in the dark, not hiding in the shadows. You know his life because he shows it to you. Holy, of course, it doesn't mean he's holy as God is holy, but he pursues holiness. He loves and cherishes holiness. He seeks after it and he's disciplined. He's disciplined because he's a disciple of Christ. He follows Jesus. And then finally, he holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. So this is a list of qualifications. It includes a pretty long description of his character attributes and then only one description of what he actually does in his role. He's got to be this kind of guy, this kind of guy, this kind of guy. You'll find these things in his home, these things in his heart. He loves like this. He hates things like this. This is about who he is and then only one description of what he actually does. And that one thing, that primary thing that every elder must be capable of doing is teaching God's word faithfully. He's got to be able to grasp the truths of the Bible and make them understandable to other people. And that's a spiritual gifting. It's not something that everybody can do, and it's not something that only elders can do, but every elder must be able to teach. And teaching takes a lot of different forms. It doesn't only look like this. A guy with a microphone strapped to his face standing in front of a crowd. That's not the only way you can be taught. You can be taught over coffee. You can be taught sitting on a couch. You can be taught through the words of the music. Matt Brantner is a faithful pastor because he teaches us right good, sound doctrine through the songs that he chooses and he makes singable for us so that we can declare the truths of God and confess our belief in them through music. He's a great pastor in that way. And also over coffee and so many cheeseburgers over the years. So then the big picture, all right, the big picture why is this important? Why, why was it so important to Paul? Why was it such an important thing that Titus was left there to do? Why didn't Paul just kind of on his way out of town go, all right, figure out who your elders are going to be. And then he hops on a boat and heads back. But he left Titus there among these evil beasts and lazy gluttons. <laughs> why would he find it so important to leave someone there to put these things in order? Because the church is a household. And just the same way your household needs order, needs direction, needs leadership, and not just like, hey, we, we can't, this is how much money we have, so if we spend this much money, we're out of order. Yes, in those kinds of ways, but spiritually, where are we going? What are we about? What's the whole point of this family? Why did God create it and bring us here together It's so that we could honor him, glorify him, make him known to those around us. And the church is a household with those same kinds of goals to be in order so that we can honor Christ. So elders play a vital role, not because they're so good at what they do, but because Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus is the elder. He is the shepherd, the pastor over this flock. And anyone who's put in a position of spiritual authority is put under his authority only to call people to obedience to him, not to call people to obedience to the elders. This is important because if the house is in order, then the house can be effective if the house is being nurtured and built up in Christ, then the house can be effective for making Christ known to those around them. We can make disciples, like Jesus said, go to every nation and make disciples. How can we do it if we don't even know what a disciple is? If we're not disciples ourselves, and it takes leadership, and it takes dedication, it takes sacrificial offering of, some, of oneself in order for that to happen. So the big picture here, we have to be aware as we read this list, I look over it, look at this list, above reproach. Who's above reproach? Who in every possible way couldn't be said like, well, you're wrong here. You're wrong there, man, you fail big time here. Who can, who can that be? Faithful to your wife, faithful to your children, a steward that can be trusted by God, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not, not losing self-control, not violent or trying to control other people, not greedy for gain, always hospitable, loving what's good, hating what's evil, controlling yourself, upright, living in the light, holy and disciplined. Who is this? What kind of person can be like, uh, yeah, I'd like to be an elder because that pretty much describes me? Who would say that? If anybody says that, it's like, well, you're not going to be an elder. (laughs) What we have to understand is this is describing (laughs) Jesus. It's describing the character of Jesus. That Jesus is a faithful steward who can be trusted to manage the household of God. That Jesus, if, if anyone does, he does hold firm to the trustworthy word so that he can give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Only Jesus can be this all the time. Only Jesus can be trusted by God all the time to be this kind of person. So then does that mean just like, well, I guess if anybody's just trying real hard, they're the elders? Well, no, it's not quite like that. Being an elder is about being a believing man who has been set apart by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit to exhibit Christ-likeness while leading the church in knowing and loving and glorifying the actual Jesus of the Bible. He's just set apart for it. It's not something that, that the elders of the church look around and they'd be like, "Uh, I get along with this guy best. And he seems like a decent guy, so we'll make him an elder. The Holy Spirit is doing this. And that's a mystery, right? It's a mystery. I mean, we don't have like in Acts where you have the Holy Spirit spoke to the elders in Antioch and said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work I've set before them. I've never, I've never been in prayer and the Holy Spirit just said, Set apart for me. That's never happened, and yet, I know that I've been a part of elders being added to the church, and I've trusted other elders and other churches and believed that it was the Holy Spirit who put them in that position. We have to believe that. That if this man, when we when we read this thing, we go, Yeah, you know what? He's not perfect, but I can see that. I can see that about him. I I know his wife. I've seen his kids. I've paid attention to him. I've listened to him. I can see that. He's a guy who really loves God, who's really given himself over to God. I could understand how that's a guy that the Holy Spirit has set apart for a particular role in the church. And that that role is to exhibit Christ likeness, not to be Christ for you, but to exhibit a dedication to growing in Christ-likeness, which, by the way, is going to entail a ton of repentance. Amen? How can you become like Jesus if you're unwilling to repent? So if you see a guy who never seems to need to repent of anything, then you've got a guy who's probably just hiding a sin. Elders should be the first ones repenting, sometimes publicly saying, look, this is how I fail. This is where I fall short. I'm trusting the Lord Jesus to overcome that in me. That's a model that we can get behind. That's someone you can trust. That's someone whose heart you know is set on growing in holiness. He's not Jesus, but he wants to be like him. And it is impossible, apart from a deep dependence on the Spirit, to keep him and grow him. It's impossible. We have to see it as a work of the Spirit. It's impossible apart from a commitment to repentance, even public repentance, from humility, from genuineness that lets you know this guy is not hiding. He is who he seems to be. Now, I would ask you to notice this. When you look over this list of character attributes, I know verse nine talks about holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, but then moves on to giving instruction and sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. it. It tacks on the very, the last half of verse nine gives this description of a role that the elder functions in in the church. But everything between verse five and the first half of verse nine, you tell me, is there anything in there that every single Christian isn't called to aspire to? Is there anything in that list of character attributes that is really the attributes of Jesus that we're all not called to grow in? In our homes, that we we are who we say we are, that we love those people in our lives that the Lord has surrounded us with. We're faithful to make the truth known to them. We're humble, patient, self-controlled, peace-loving, generous, gracious, a lover of good, walking in holiness, disciplined in our obedience to Christ, holding firm to God's word, and even making God's word known to others. This is something that every single believer is called to. So then why is he just talking about elders? Because elders are the model Elders are called to this extremely difficult, dependent on the Holy Spirit task of standing in front going, follow me, Jesus is this way, I see him out ahead of us, come with me, and you can trust him. You can trust him that he's actually on his way to Jesus. In his letter to the believers in Galatia, Paul gives a similar list Of attributes that every believer should be seeking, right? And you probably know it by heart. Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That doesn't sound all too different from this Titus list, does it? He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He tells the Galatians. They're serious about holiness. They hate their sin. They love Jesus more. So there's not a person who trusts Christ who should not desire to rise to this Titus chapter one level of maturity and faith in Christ. Not any exception. We should all be seeking to live this way. We should all be seeking to be this kind of person. The elders are the men of the church who are called by God to just walk by the Spirit, crucify their flesh, abandon their idolatrous hope in anything of this world to fulfill them, give them joy, secure their salvation. It's all abandoned and only Christ is set before me as worthy of my life and I call you to follow him with me. That's an elder. Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And the elders are called to constantly, perpetually proclaim him as better all the time to the people who are entrusted to their care. That's an elder. Someone who's been set apart by the Holy Spirit and is dedicated to that task. That task is going to be primarily worked out by teaching you what the Bible says now, this, this gets down to kind of the, here's why you see it happening the way it happens, all right? You see the elders standing in front of you. You see them as public figures. They're always saying things about the Bible. They're always praying things about the Bible. They're always trying to get you to understand, know, and believe what the Bible says because the Bible declares Jesus as the center of the universe, The ultimate satisfaction of all things is to know Christ, to be found in him, to share in his sufferings, so that we can know him in deeper, more profound ways that fill us up with his life. That's what all of life is about. That's what all of scripture is about. So the elders who are called in particular by the Holy Spirit to teach you the word of God are simply just Pointing at Jesus all the time, pointing at Jesus. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. If you look at me, just see me pouring my life out to know him better. See me hating my flesh, crucifying it so that I could be found to reflect his character more purely. Now, again, when it comes down to the actual function of of an elder-led church. You're going to hear in a few weeks from, from Roosevelt about how that's arranged, how that works in the life of the church, and how you play a part in that. But I would ask you as we are seeing qualifications for elders and we're seeing the importance of it, that it's, it's not just so that we could have this nice, tidy little household here where everybody's in order, everybody's in their place, and some people get a more important job and they get more accolades because that's not what this is. Instead, what this is about is the gospel advancing for the glory of Christ. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Why was Paul planting churches in Crete? Why did he plant churches anywhere? Except for the synagogue. Why was he planting churches? He was planting churches because the gospel planted in a community will see people by the Holy Spirit's power come to know the figure, central figure of the gospel, Jesus Christ, devote their lives to him through their faith and obedience and make the gospel known to others so that the kingdom of Christ is advancing in the world so that when Jesus returns, there's a people called by his name, known by him, loved by him for his glory. They'll gather to himself who live with him in eternity, reigning with him and inheritance found in him that can never be tarnished, never be taken from him. This is about the people of God, knowing God, and enjoying him forever. Appoint elders in every town so that that can happen. So that the gospel would advance, the kingdom of Christ would advance in the world. Man, eldership is not just like, that'd be nice. Eldership is not like, well, somebody's got to do it. Eldership is not just some kind of full time job where you get to work in the air conditioning. Eldership is critical, according to Jesus. It's vital for the life of the church, according to Jesus. It's not easy, in fact, it's impossible. And it takes a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit for it to be good and God-honoring, according to Jesus. So I would ask you then, please, church, brothers, sisters, please pray for your elders. Please pray. We know why we pray, right? Praying is because... In the natural sense, this thing that I hope to see accomplished is impossible and it will take an act of God for it to be done. So please pray, please pray for us. Pray that we would be these men. Pray that we would recognize these men in the church when the Lord, it puts them in our midst and the Holy Spirit is calling them and appointing them as elders. Please pray that we would have spiritual eyes to see that we would recognize them. Please pray that as the elders, we'd be faithful to the task we've been given by the chief shepherd to advance the gospel in the hearts of the people entrusted to us. As Peter says, to minister to the flock of God that is among you. Uh, We're not podcast pastors trying to minister to all these various flocks around the world that we've never even seen face to face or been in a room with. It's the actual flock of God among us that we're called to shepherd. Pray that we would be faithful, please. Because God is saying this is how he advances the gospel. That the church grows up in Christ and then those growing up in Christ Christians are making Christ known to the world around them and calling the world to repentance and faith in Jesus. We just so desperately need to pray. But please don't forget in the midst of all of it, That eldership is something, and and I'm saying this last because I feel like it it is important for you to know walking away from this time together. Eldership is not something that is only for those who it really makes sense would be for. You know what I mean by that? Like there's certain people that just seem real polished, they really seem to have it together. They really look like they know and sound like they know what they're talking about. And when they come through the doors of the church, somebody's like, what a charming looking person. I think we too often see potential elders that way. Who has the slickest kind of speech? Who's able to kind of, uh, uh, you know, call people to himself in a way that's not scary, not, not kind of intimidating, but a person who's just like easy, a person who makes friends easily? They dress nicely. They have this air of kind of maturity about them as we define it culturally. Maybe they have a great job and make plenty of money. We've got to define who an elder is according to what the scriptures say, which means some person could walk in the back doors of this place and look like the scrubbiest joint that ever rolled off of 1960. Maybe he had to catch a bus here. Maybe he doesn't make much money at all, and you know it by the way he's dressed. And that dude might be the most faithful pastor that ever graced this place because we're not looking at outward appearances. So then here's that, what that means for you, men of the church in particular, because Scripture just says this is a role that God has designed for men, and there are different, very important roles he's designed for women, but eldership in particular is something that men are called to. So listen— Men of the church, do not, because of your job, because of your social status, because of your race, because of your upbringing, because of what kind of family you came out of or whatever past church experience you have, do not disqualify yourself if the Holy Spirit is setting you apart for a work that he's called you to. Do not for a moment For a moment, think that because of the way you comb your hair or because of the way you either do or don't tuck in your shirt or because of how confident you are in yourself, that you are either qualified or disqualified for being an elder. Do you love Jesus with your whole heart? With everything that you are, do you dedicate yourself to his glory? Do you love your wife if you have one? And you don't have to to be an elder But if you do, do you love her? Do you lay your life down for her like Christ does the church and that he gave himself up for her? Do you love your children? Do you not provoke them to anger, but you nurture them and disciple them up in the knowledge of the Lord so that they wouldn't depart from it? Do you love the church? Do you pray for the church? Do you pray that the gospel would advance so that Christ would be glorified? Do you want to pour yourself out? Even if it's wasted completely on the glory of Christ and none for yourself. If that's who you are, man, come and talk to us. Come and talk to us. It could be that the Lord set you apart. Maybe not. Maybe you're just a faithful, God-loving brother. And this isn't it. But maybe this is it. I'll tell you one thing. It's a miracle that I'm standing in front of you. And sometimes I wonder why you even care what I think or why you should trust me to say this, but I can promise you, I can promise you, it's not because I'm special. Or Galen or Roosevelt or my dad, praise God, who's an elder in the church with me or Russ or Matt Akers, or Billy Sheel, or Matt Brander. It's not anything special about the man. It's something very special about the Spirit who calls the man. Taking the least and doing something to honor God. So in the following weeks, we'll continue to see how this functions in the church, how the Lord has called us to follow Him together and what leadership looks like what sound doctrine looks like and the teaching of it looks like and lives dedicated to really expressing that doctrine. What does that look like? I think Titus will be real helpful in that. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.